Louis, I think this is the beginning of a beautiful friendship. Rhodes? Well, we're going, we don't need Rhodes. The greatest trick the devil ever pulled was convincing the world he didn't exist. No, I am your father. You're listening to After the Ending, the only film podcast where we tell you what happens after the ending of your favorite films. And now, here are your hosts, Mike Spring and Phil Edwards. Hello, and welcome to After the Ending. I'm Mike Spring. And I'm Phil Edwards. Phil, how are you doing today? Oh, it's not good, Mike. It's not good. I'm sure they're listening. Shh. Do you hear that? Shh. Yeah, they're listening to me. I think I'm being followed. (laughs) You know, in this case, though, it's good if people are listening, right? Because we're a podcast. Oh, yeah. Sorry. That was ah. <laughs> so, the, we kind of want that. Whoa, that's sort yeah. of our goal. Oh, that's, uh, yeah. It's just <laughs> the, the, these guys in all in black seem to be following me, but uh, no, I understand that. All right. Whew, good thing. Well, I think uh, that might give people a clue as to what movies were – well, one of the movies we're talking about today. But why don't you fill people in uh, for those who just think you're losing your marbles? <laughs> yes, we will be doing that great piece of espionage and listening in. 1974's Francis Ford Coppola directed film The Conversation – Starring Gene Hackman. And we will then be going to 1990 for Tim Burton's Edward Scissorhands. And our top 10 films this week will be the top 10 of 2012, so not long ago. The, the, the year the world is supposed to end, according to the Mayans or the Incas. Or yeah, the Incas, I think it's just it been postponed for a little bit. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Look at yeah, what's going well, on, yeah. Yeah, I was going to say. <laughs> yeah. Darn those, those Mayans, they never get anything right. You know what, my, you know, if any Mayans are listening... <laughs> well done. Uh, I, I guess on uh, really though we should thank them because that is one. If you're going to make a mistake, picking the end of the world date is probably a good one to mess up on. You know? Yeah, yeah. You want to mess up on it. Right, right. <laughs> All right. Well, anyway. Um, so yes, a, a jam-packed episode for you today. Let's jump into things. Why don't we have a conversation about the conversation? Ha ha. bum. Wow, I like that. <laughs> Yeah, that's why I don't get paid for this. Okay, anyway, um, Phil, why don't you take us through the events of the conversation? Harry Cole, played by Gene Hackman, he's a surveillance expert and has got his own company in San Francisco. He's obsessed with his own privacy. His apartment is triple locked and alarmed. He only uses payphones, and his office is enclosed in wire mesh in the corner of a much larger warehouse. And he also loves to play saxophone. He finds personal contact difficult, and he feels very guilty over a past wiretap job that resulted in the murder of three people. However, he's, he gets a new job, and that involves recording a conversation between a couple in a, a big, noisy crowd. So it takes a lot of work. He's got to record things. He's got to do it through all different filters, clean it up. But eventually, he gets a clear recording. But the words are quite ambiguous. And he focuses on the phrase, he'd kill us if he got the chance. And he listens to it over and over again. And every time he thinks it means this, it means that, and he doesn't know what to, what to think. He, and he avoids handing over the tape to the aide, played by Harrison Ford, of the man who commissioned the whole recording, uh, played by Robert Duvall, uh, because he doesn't want something bad to happen, as happened in the past. But he, he ends up being followed, he gets bugged, conversations recorded, and eventually, when his guard goes down, the tape gets stolen. And he's tormented by guilt, but the conversation eventually did not mean what he thought it did. But it still didn't end well. As a result of all that went on, he believes his apartment is bugged, and so he tears it apart, all the floorboards, knocks holes in the wall, looks at all of the light fixtures and everything, but he finds nothing. And the film ends with him playing sax among the wreckage, and he's a broken man. 
and that's the conversation. And it's a very, very good film. It really is. I know it's it's hard to kind of get a sense of it from from listening to our description of it, but it is this really great conspiracy paranoia thriller from the seventies. Uh, Gene Hackman is brilliant, obviously. You yeah. know, Harrison Ford's got a small part, but it's great to see him. And it's just like I said, has this really cool ending to it. So uh, definitely a film to track down if you have not seen it yet. It's also uh, Gene Hackman was playing a little bit against type. I always thought because it's uh, he's playing this very quiet, uh, nervous kind of character. Right. You know, usually he was always playing like these kind of. Uh, not quite larger than life, but, you know, confidence, you know, some of them are loud mouths, some things like that. Yeah, but it's uh, very it's, brash yeah. characters a lot of times. Good change of pace for him. Yeah, definitely. He's fantastic in it. Okay, so that was the uh, that was what happened in the film, but what did you have happening for your day after? Okay, well, a week later, the landlord of Harry's apartment enters his unit. Harry's overdue on the rent, and the landlord can't get a hold of him. When he enters, he swears quietly under his breath. The apartment is in complete disarray. Everything's been ripped apart in Harry's search for surveillance equipment. The landlord assumes the place has been robbed and calls the police. They arrive, tag all the evidence, and put out an APB for one Harry call. When his name hits the wire, a number of government agencies, both domestic and foreign, become very interested in tracking him down. However, Harry's gone off the grid and is nowhere to be found. He's vanished like a ghost. And that's my day after. Very nice. Thank you. Oh, yeah, I could see that's uh, probably what he would do. Well, something like that. I mean, mm. you know. Okay, cool. All right, well, how about your day after? Okay, Harry plays saxophone all night, but then when the sun rises, he stops. He puts the saxophone down, puts on his coat, and leaves the apartment. He walks to the train station and buys a ticket for the first train out of San Francisco. He pays cash. He isn't really thinking exactly where he's going. He's just almost on autopilot, but his autopilot involves checking it to see if he's being followed, and he's very, some part of him is very aware of what he's doing. He keeps changing trains, and eventually he begins to focus more on his situation. He doesn't think he was followed, and he realises he no longer wants to spy on people, as he feels just too much guilt. And that's my day after. Okay, interesting. All right, so also very in the spirit of the film, mm. I think. Mm. So, okay, what have you got then for your immediate aftermath? Okay, well, ten years later, a man emerges from a train in Washington, D.C., he has curly hair and wears wire-framed glasses, has a slightly twitchy way about him. He looks around, lights a cigarette, and makes his way out of the station. He heads for a hotel in downtown, checks into a room on the top floor. He turns on the news, flips around the TV, and then takes a bath. Once he's refreshed, he opens up his briefcase and removes a tape recorder from it. He hits the play button and listens once again to the mission that's been laid out for him. Confident in his instructions, he takes the special case and exits his room. He heads to the roof, opens the case, and removes the pieces for a very large, high-caliber rifle. He pieces it all together, gets in position, and looks through the scope. Then he plugs into his high-tech surveillance equipment and tunes directly into the Secret Service's bandwidth, intercepting their communications, something which is supposed to be impossible. He checks his watch, then sits back and waits for the time when the President's motorcade is scheduled to drive down the street below. Oof. That's my immediate aftermath. Wow, that took a turn. Yeah. Wow. I like it. Yeah. Thank you. All right. Well, let's hear what you've got then. I'm curious to see where you're going. Okay. Harry spends the next few months moving from town to town. He makes money by getting jobs in electrical stores, repairing broken TVs and the like. With every day that passes, he chips away at the mountain of guilt within him. One night in a town whose name we do not know, he passes a club and hears jazz being played. He goes in and is lost in the music. Moving away from his previous life also included the saxophone, but he realizes now how much he misses it. The next day, he goes to the local recording studio and manages to get a job working there. He just repairs the equipment at first, but he's left alone 
and he gets to listen to the music. And that's my immediate aftermath. I like that, though, because, you know, it, it, it makes sense that that is a job he could do, you know, because yeah. he knows audio equipment really well. And, and that audio engineering world is so specialized. So it's kind of an interesting sort of turn for him, but still related to what he's an expert at. Yeah, that's what I thought. I was trying to find something else where he could use his skills, but not necessarily in the espionage thing. And then his love of music, well, the fact he was playing the saxophone, it just makes sense. And it's sort of like the kind of thing which blends in. Yeah, right, right, which makes sense because I think he, when, if he wants to disappear, that's a good way to do it. Yeah, yeah. Very cool. Okay, then what have you got for your long term? What happens with this uh, with the president? Okay, well, as the president's car moves down the avenue, the man on the roof takes aim. He lines the president up in his sights and exhales deeply. Then his finger tightens on the trigger. A shot rings out in the quiet morning. The man with the sniper rifle slumps over dead with one side of his head now covered in blood. From a building across the way, another man steps back from the roof and sets down his own rifle. Call, this is Phelps, he speaks into the miniature microphone attached <laughs> to his lapel. The target has been neutralized. Eagle One is secure. Repeat, Eagle One is secure. Good work, Phelps, Harry says from the other end of the line. Phelps says, I don't know where you've been for the last ten years, Harry, but you really saved our asses this time. Let's just say I decided to play on offense, Harry replies. As Phelps packs up his rifle and gear, he says, So what's next, Harry? You going to disappear for another ten years? I don't think so, Harry replies. It's time to make some changes in this town. I was thinking of starting up a new special division for dealing with situations just like this. What do you think of the name Impossible Missions Force? Oh, I like it. And that's the end. So he, oh, Harry Cole was the one who developed it. Uh, nice. That's what I was thinking. You know, he takes his kind of high-tech, you know, spy knowledge. Yeah, and, yeah. And instead of just spying on people, he decides to kind of become more proactive with this, where I was. Oh, you know, very where nice. I to go with that. I so, like yeah, it. Thanks. I thought so. I had fun. I had fun with it. Mm. All right. Well, I want to hear about Harry and the uh, in the world of jazz music and audio engineering. So why don't you bring us home with your long term? Okay. Years, months and years passed by. Harry stayed working in the studio, learning everything he could. Eventually he leaves. And with the money he saved, well, he did have quite a bit of money, cash, you know, stashed away in places. He opens his own studio. He focuses on jazz, but he ends up getting a reputation as a great producer for many different types of music. He also develops new recording equipment that gives stunning sound quality, and he produces a few award-winning albums. He never does interviews, and on all the work he produces, he is just down as H, and that is all anyone ever calls him. Sitting in his studio, either playing music or recording other people, he has finally found peace, and is no longer the broken man he once was. And that's my long term. Very cool. I like it. I like taking Harry in a different direction. Yeah, I just thought he'd just want to get... It was just destroying him what he did, so... Absolutely. He just... Uh, Never go back. I felt, but uh, right, right, very cool. All right, well, Phil, why don't you, uh, why don't you fill us in on the trivia versation? Yeah, so this is from the uh, the personal private diary of Francis Ford Coppola and various wiretaps that I had set up for him. Oh, that was smart of you. <laughs> yeah, you know, it was the year after I was born, so <laughs> right. Yeah. You were very, very active for a one-year-old. Yeah, I was very good with electrical listening devices back then. <laughs> uh, they recorded the dialogue that Harry records multiple times with lots of different readings, so it could be interpreted different ways. So he played back different versions of it. Uh, Gene Hackman learned to play the saxophone for the role. Huh. Harrison Ford's part was initially just a cameo. However, Ford decided to play the character as gay and bought the green silk suit he wears for $900, which uh, I think back then was quite a bit of money. Yeah, seriously. Francis Ford Coppola was shocked but impressed with Ford's interpretation, so he expanded the role and gave it a name called Martin Stett. It was, the film was originally envisioned as a horror movie with Marlon Brando. <laughs> uh, the original music was composed prior to production and it was played to the actors before the scenes 
began filming. The original cut was four and a half hours long. Oh, jeez. And the extra scenes needed to finish the film were filmed on the set of Chinatown. Huh. Which is a nice, nice little yeah. one. Very cool. But that's the conversation. All right. Well, that was a lot of fun. Why don't we move on then to our next film, Edward Scissorhands. Yes. A nice bit of Tim Burton. It's, uh, I do like uh, Edward Scissorhands. I do too. It's definitely one of uh, the Tim Burton films that I, I really do have an appreciation for. It's been a while since I've seen it, but uh, it, it is a film I've always greatly enjoyed. Yeah, I was, it's the one. It's one of the ones where it all sort of comes together. Though you have it fits Tim Burton's whole, you know, milieu. Yeah, it's just it just everything. It's got the fantastical with the norm normality of things of life. So uh, do you want to give us a rundown of what happens in the film? Sure thing. Well, Edward Scissorhands, 1990, directed by Tim Burton, as we've just said, uh, starring Johnny Depp, Winona Ryder, Vincent Price in his last film role, Anthony Michael Hall, Diane Weist, and Alan Arkin. So the film starts with an elderly woman telling her granddaughter about how snow is made. Edward Scissorhands, Johnny, played by Johnny Depp, is a boy created by an old inventor, played by Vincent Price, who dies before he can replace Edward's scissor-like hands with real hands. Some years later, a woman named Peg Boggs discovers Edward living alone in the inventor's mansion and takes him home. Peg introduces Edward to her family, her husband Bill, their young son Kevin, and their teenage daughter Kim, played by Winona Ryder. While they are unnerved by Edward at first, they come to know him and recognize his kind soul and eventually accept him. Edward begins to do things like trimming bushes and cutting dogs' hair, but when he turns down a lonely neighborhood woman's advances, she tells the neighborhood folk that he made a pass at her and they turn against him. When Kim's jealous boyfriend Jim, played by Anthony Michael Hall, frames Edward for a burglary, he's caught by the police. After his release, Edward flees back to the inventor's mansion. He also makes an ice sculpture of Kim at some point during all this, the shavings of which create snow in an area of the country that never gets snow. I always kind of felt like it was Florida, but I don't think it's ever explicitly said. Yeah, I don't think they mentioned where it is, do they? Right, but I always got that impression, very kind of yeah. like Miami, that type of thing, so yeah. Fort Lauderdale, something like that. Jim and Edward have a showdown, and Jim tries to frame Edward again for hurting him. But when Jim slaps Kim, Edward stabs him and shoves him out a high window in the mansion. When the police arrive, Kim, who has professed her love to Edward, tells the police that Jim and Edward both fell to their deaths. The film then flashes back to the elderly woman, who reveals that she never saw Edward again, of course then being Kim as an older lady, uh, and that she still believes that he lives on in the mansion, as is evidenced by the snow that sometimes falls and that she sometimes dances in. And that is Edward Scissorhands. Ah, uh, it's all nice and lovely. It is, isn't it? Yeah. Kind of bittersweet, but... Yeah, bittersweet. I think my ending might go a bit further. Oh, great. <laughs> <laughs> well, why delay then? Why don't we jump right into things? Give us your day after. Okay, the years have passed by and Edward sits alone in the inventor's mansion. He has become a myth, a legend, and is long thought dead. Although he does not age, he does begin to break down, or maybe not break down, he's, parts of him begin to wear out or go a bit funny. Faults appear in his memory, and the moments when the townsfolk turned on him keep replaying in his mind over and over. The lack of human contact over the decades hasn't helped, and, with another Christmas looming, he looks down on the town that hurt him. He begins sharpening his hands and plots his revenge. Oh, it's been a while since we've had a bona fide Phil serial killer. <laughs> Maybe this could be the return, huh? <laughs> well, we have to wait and see. We shall see. So what about you? What have you got for the day after? All right. Well, shortly after telling the story to her granddaughter, aged Kim dies. After her funeral, while going through her things, the young girl, whose name is Ginny, discovers a locket that has a picture in it, which she believes to be Edward. She puts it in her pocket and slowly goes back to mourning her grandmother. 
A decade or so later, Ginny is about to go off to college and is packing up her room. As she's boxing up items from her desk, she comes across the locket, which she had forgotten all about. With a sudden pang of missing her grandmother, she grabs the locket and heads toward the abandoned mansion to see if Edward is still there. And that's where I'm going to leave it for now. Ooh, okay. I like it. Thank you. All right. Well, I am, I am desperate to know if we're going to have a bloodbath on our hands. So, Phil, bring us your immediate aftermath. <laughs> okay. The town is getting ready for Christmas when the first death is reported. The body of a local drunk is found sliced up. Then news comes of another and then another. The police find no clues except for the horrific wounds on each body. Ten people were murdered in the same way that Christmas, and then they stopped. Nobody was arrested. And that's the immediate aftermath. Ooh, chilling. <laughs> Edward murder hands, maybe. Exactly, yeah. Have you got some, a character with big blades for fingers? <laughs> right. There's only know. so many ways you can go with that, really. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so what's happening then with the lockets and the girl in the mansion? All right, well, uh, Ginny arrives at the mansion, and while she's apprehensive at first, she gathers up her courage and reaches for the massive doorknob. The door is unlocked, so she pushes it open and makes her way inside. She comes to a grand hallway, and looking up at the walls, realizes that it's filled with beautiful paintings, and each one is a portrait of her grandmother. They start at one end of the hallway and go to the other, and they show her at every stage of her life, as a teenage girl, as a young, as a young woman in her 20s, as a mom in her 30s, and so on, all the way until she was an elderly woman. Ginny realizes that Edward must have painted them. Venturing further, she turns a corner and enters a large room that is the only room in the house that looks lived in. Finally, she calls out, hello, but is greeted only by echoes. And that's my immediate aftermath. Oh, oh I like the sound of that. Thank you. All right, well, I want to hear what's happening. Is it Edward or is it a copycat? Let's find out. Give us your long term. Okay. The years pass by, and every year at Christmas, ten people in the town are killed. No more, no less. As the years go by, the attacker appears to be more and more savage. Then one year, Detective Pete Boggs, the great-grandson of Kim, comes across an old diary of Kim's. He reads it and discovers the story of Edward Scissorhands. At first, he thinks it is just a tall tale, but doing some research, he discovers it was true. Heading up to the old manor, he is astounded to see the grounds immaculate, but the house seems deserted. Walking around the mansion, he sees slash marks and cuts everywhere. But he doesn't see the now totally deranged Edward Scissorhands as he walks up behind him, his hands held up high. And that's the end. Oh, wow. It went <laughs> dark there, huh? Yeah, yeah. Jeez. Edward's serial hands there. That's it, yeah. He's just going to kill. He's killing the last descendant right. of the girl he loved. Serial as in serial killer, just to be clear. Not like not like he yeah. has frosted flakes for hands. You know, that would be <laughs> no. very, very different. Yeah. Quick throw milk at him. <laughs> <laughs> He'll get soggy. Then he can't yeah. hurt you. Uh-huh. <laughs> yeah, no, I just thought if he's if he's not going to rage and years would just go by and he's all by himself, he would, you know, he's going to go a bit loopy. It, it does make sense, sadly, that, you know, if he's not going to have any human contact and he's got these scissor hands, you know, at some point, maybe things are going to start to go in a dark direction. So yeah, was I, either, was... I thought he's either going to kill people or he'd end up cutting himself into bits. Right, right. But, uh, so what cool. happens then with your long term? Okay, well, looking around, Ginny finds two apparatuses that she realizes are Edward's scissor hands. He must have somehow figured out a way to replace them with real hands. As she explores, she sees a painting in the corner that's mostly covered by a tarp. She pulls back the tarp to reveal the painting, and it's different from the others. Instead of just being a portrait of Kim, it's a full-scene painting. She realizes it's a wedding, and it only takes a second to recognize that the couple are Kim and Edward. Her heart breaks for the unrequited love between the two of them, and she finds herself overwhelmed with emotion, breaking down and crying. 
After she gathers herself and leaves, she contacts the various authorities and finds a legal way to collect all of the paintings. With her parents' help, she opens a small art gallery in town with the 40 or 50 paintings on display, and it becomes something of a tourist attraction in the way that quirky locations in small towns often do. Hmm. Kim goes to college, but every summer returns to town and spends her summer running the gallery and regaling visitors with the tale of her grandmother and Edward. Fifty years later, Ginny is an old woman, retired and running the gallery more as a labor of love than because she needs to work. One day, a man walks into the gallery. He looks around quietly, smiles at Ginny, drops a sizable wad of cash into the donations jar, and walks out. Ginny takes a moment, then pulls out the locket from around her neck, looks at the picture of Edward, and smiles warmly. It's nice to see that Edward hasn't changed at all in all these years. Well, except for his hands. Oh, that's nice. And that's the end. Yeah. I think I think we had uh, one extreme to the other with our ending. This was kind of a classic Phil and Mike, though. Like, I went for the sappy romance ending. You went for the serial killer. I mean, if that sort of doesn't yeah. sum up our styles of after the endings, I don't know what does. Yeah, it's a quintessential after the ending. It really is, exactly. <laughs> now, that being said, though, I do have to tell you, I, I started on a different path. Oh, go on. And, but I really wanted to I, – I, I love this movie, and I really wanted to keep to the spirit of it. So I think I – think I, I, hopefully at least I captured that. But I, I really had this idea where she goes to the mansion and finds Edward and then takes him off to college with her. And it turns into like a college like comedy. And he oh, becomes yeah, known yeah. as Edward Forty Hands because they like find out a way to like – like make his hands holding like forty ounce beers, and like they, <laughs> you know, he just goes off and becomes like a big party animal. Dude, check out this guy's house. <laughs> right, right. Uh, but I decided that didn't really keep with the spirit of the film, so I I didn't go with with that. But I, I almost did. Um, so that would have been fun too, I think. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. Lots of lots lots of different hand attachments. Right, right, exactly. <laughs> uh, all right. Well, uh, Phil, why don't you regale us with some Edward trivia hands? Okay, well, Tim Burton has never intended to make a sequel to this film, as he feels it would rob the film of its purity. Well, I uh, guess we killed that, didn't we? <laughs> well, well, no, yours still had the purity. Mine, mine sort yours of... Yours not so much. Yeah, mine just kills it, the purity. Uh, Edward only says 169 words in the whole film. Winona Ryder dropped out of making The Godfather 3 to do Edward Scissorhands. Wow, that's a that's a kind of a big deal, I think. I know, it's a... To, that's a bit of a gamble, isn't it? Luckily, I think it might have sort of paid off because... Yeah, she might have read the script, you know. Yeah, Godfather 3. Right. Yeah. Uh, the, ent- the entire story is meant to be seen through Edward's eyes, which is why everything looks fantastical. Hmm. So I was almost thinking about maybe playing on that and have it where you actually see, if you saw it the other way around, where you see Edward and he's not, he doesn't look like Johnny Depp, he just looks like this total robot kind of thing. Oh, right, right. That's but, cool. Uh, but if it's all through his eyes, yeah, could, everything could be different. It's, you know, unreliable narrator and all that stuff. Right, right. Johnny Depp refused any cooling agent, even in full leather, in the full leather costume. Wow. And he lost £25 for the role. Hmm. It was the first time Tim Burton and Johnny Depp worked together, and they never worked together again after that. Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's funny. Yeah, as we all know, they've done many, many. Right. Uh, it was the last screen appearance by Vincent Price, sadly, but, well, it was a good little role. Yeah. Uh, and other actors who were offered or considered for the title role of Edward were Gary Oldman, Tom Cruise, Jim Carrey, and Robert Downey Jr. Hmm. And each one of them would have given us a totally different film, I think. Yeah, absolutely. I don't know which one I'd prefer out of all of them. Maybe, I could maybe see Robert Downey Jr. Right. Being the, the best of that bunch, but I'm not sure. Interesting. But Ga- Gary Oldman would have been interesting. Yeah, yeah, see. definitely. 
But I think this is again one of those roles that you know Johnny Depp was perfect for. Oh yes, and, yeah, and so I think it, it you know worked out in the best possible way. Okay, well that wraps up the conversation and Edward Scissorhands. Why don't we move on then to our 100 years of Hollywood in 100 episodes? This week we are tackling 2012, a pretty recent year. So Phil, why don't you step into that time machine briefly and go back a couple of years? Tell us what was happening back in 2012. Yes, and. 2012 or 2012, depending on how you want to say it. Uh, the Prime Minister in Britain was David Cameron and the President was Barack Obama. Uh, oh, the good old days. <laughs> uh, it was also a leap year and it saw the Diamond Jubilee of Queen Elizabeth II. That's uh, the 60th anniversary of her ascension to the throne. After 244 years since its first publication, the Encyclopedia Britannica discontinues its print edition. Sad. Yeah, sad. I can understand why, but it's still sad. Yep. Uh, what else? It was the 2012 Summer Olympics in London. The Curiosity rover landed on Mars. Seven paintings worth $25 million were stolen from Kunsthal in Rotterdam. So that's a lot of money. Uh, the Tokyo Skytree, the tallest self-supporting tower in the world at 634 meters high, was open to the public. And the Shenzhou 9, a Chinese spacecraft carrying three Chinese astronauts, including the first ever female, docked manually with the orbiting module Tiangong-1 making them the third country after the USA and Russia to successfully perform the mission. Oh, and what was the one last one? The CERN discovered new particle with properties consistent with the Higgs boson. Okay. So that was what was going on that year, but we also had the deaths of some legends. We saw the passing, sadly, of Etta James, Whitney Houston, Davy Jones, Earl Scruggs, Vidal Sassoon, Carol Shelby, Donna Summer, Ray Bradbury, Nora Ephron, Andy Griffith, Ernest Borgnine, Sally Ride, Gore Vidal, Phyllis Diller, Neil Armstrong, Harry Harrison, Tony Scott, Michael Clark Duncan, Laurie Hagman, and Jack Klugman. Yeah, definitely uh, the loss of some amazing talent in that year. So, Well, let's return to cheerier climbs then and talk about movies that we love from 2012. Yeah, it was, it was an odd year because there was there's like good movies, but there, was, but there was lots of so-so movies, which were sort of, you know, enjoyable to watch, but which yeah, didn't make me go, ooh, yeah. Right. Yeah, I will say I I did not have a hard time narrowing it down to 10 films that I yeah. really liked. Although yeah. I do really like these top 10 films, um, but it, it definitely wasn't that difficult for me. Yeah. Okay. Well, do you want to kick it off then with your number 10? Well, my number 10 is probably uh, the most unconventional pick for me anyway on this list, and it is The Secret World of Arietti, uh, a Studio Ghibli animated film. It was written by the great Hayao Miyazaki, um, and uh, but not directed by him. And it's based actually on the story The Borrowers, which has been made into film form uh, a few times before. Yeah. And uh, the reason it's unconventional pick is I'm not typically a big Studio Ghibli fan. I know they have uh, a lot of fans. Their movies are well-loved, like My Neighbor Totoro and Howl's Moving Castle and Princess Mononoke. And generally speaking, I'm just not a big fan. Uh, I just can't get into their films overall for some reason. However, I really enjoyed The Secret World of Arietti. It's it's this really great uh, story. Like I said, it's based on The, the Borrowers. So it's little four-inch people living in the house of regular humans and then uh, things sort of take a turn from there but it's it's a it's a very mature film there is sort of this not a darker element to it but kind of a more a more serious tone to it but it also has some humor it's gorgeous looking film uh, and I just got really engaged with the, the characters in the story which is something that I find almost never happens with a Studio Ghibli film for me so that's why I think I liked it more than I expected to and that's why it's my number 10. Excellent. I mean, I do like most Studio Ghibli films, but uh, I've not seen this one, so that's why it doesn't go on my list. I've always liked The Borrowers. It's been uh, made into a TV show a few times over here. Right. 
because it's uh, I think it was Mary Norton wrote it. She's an English author, but uh-huh. uh, this is one I've always kept meaning to see, but I've just not got around to it yet. Well, I highly recommend it. It's very, very good. Okay. My number 10, though, was a box office smash. <laughs> or was it? It's John Carter. Ah, okay. Interesting. Which, which came from Disney. It was directed by Andrew Stanton, and it was uh, based on A Princess of Mars, the first bar- book in the Barsoom series by Edgar Rice Burroughs. I like the books. And I really liked John Carter. I thought it was a great adaptation. God knows why they didn't call it John Carter of Mars. But that seemed to be the, the main thing, the main problem with the film, the uh, the way it was publicised and the lack of Disney not getting behind it. I, I thought it was a pretty good action film, good sci-fi film. Uh, some people were complaining because it was a bit cliched, but John Carter, these stories were written way before. Lots of all the sci-fi films we know and loved ripped off John Carter, the books. Right. I actually read a book about the failure of John Carter at the box office and, and oh, yeah. the cascade of events that led to it becoming sort of a, a disaster at the box office. Uh, and I, I do think that the, most of the failure of that movie lies squarely on the marketing yeah. side of yeah. things. I will say, however, I really didn't like the movie at all. Oh, I know lots of people who didn't like it. But yeah, that's my number 10. Okay, good pick. All right, well, my number nine is a film that was actually successful at the box office, and yet it still gets a lot of uh, people complaining about it, and it is The Amazing Spider-Man, which is the first film by Mark Webb that stars Andrew Garfield and Emma Stone. And as I've talked about many, many times in the podcast before, I'm a huge fan of both of Mark Webb's films, including The Amazing Spider-Man 2, which everybody hated for no reason whatsoever. Um, But I really like this first one. I know it's a retelling of Spider-Man's origin, and I know that that was unnecessary, and I agree that it was unnecessary. However, I still think it made for a very entertaining film. I think Andrew Garfield was the perfect casting for Peter Parker. Yeah, he really is. I I love the sense of humor in the film. I love that they they sort of did some kind of cool stuff with the origin with Peter's parents and everything. Um, And it's got Emma Stone in it. So really, what more do you need? So as far as I'm concerned, this is one of my favorite Spider-Man movies. I know that Sam Raimi's are more popular, but I was never that big a fan of them. Uh, so this, to me, is, is much truer to the Spider-Man that I know and love. Yeah, it's. Uh, I, I enjoyed both the Spider-Man, the, uh, the amazing Spider-Man films. Uh, this one didn't get on my list, but it was like sort of bubbling under. But everything you said is true. It's, uh, I thought Garfield was brilliant. Uh, I think he was, the, he was a cracking Peter Parker. When he was Spider-Man, the wisecracks and everything, it looked great. Yep. Uh, I, I preferred that the Amazing Spider-Man to the first Sam Raimi one. Good man. Yeah, good pick. Okay, my number nine is 21 Jump Street. Ah, very good. Yeah, which uh, I had extremely low expectations for when I heard <laughs> right. about it. I right. was never, I think I've, I don't think, that, I think the show 21 Jump Street played over here in the UK, but uh, if it did, I never, I think I saw about one episode. Right. Whatever it was. So I wasn't, I, I knew the basic concept, uh, but when I heard about this with Channing Tatum and Jonah Hill, I was going, what? Uh, I didn't get, I didn't go to see it at the pictures, but eventually I did see it, and I just laughed all the way through. Oh, absolutely! And uh, it's just it was one of those ones which makes you realise how good Channing Tatum is. Oh yeah, it's yeah. so many different things. It's yep. it's sickening. Yeah, he look he looks the way he looks. He can dance, he can <laughs> right. sing, and he's good at comedy. Right. And oh, he can be an action hero, and he's also a pretty decent dramatic actor. So yeah, yeah. I and know. when you and when you yeah. see him interviewed, you just go, "Oh, you're a really nice bloke." Right. Right. Yeah. Yes. Well, we had the interview with him. Oh, uh, yes, way yeah. back when, and I think you get a sense of that when that's you know, right. I was yeah, yeah. Him, so I also had Brie Larson as well. Yeah, that's right. Pre-Oscar yeah. Brie, Brie Larson. But uh, yeah, it's uh, a cracking comedy, and it's my number nine. Very good choice. I like it very much. All right. Well, my number eight is The Expendables Two. 
Now, uh, not necessarily high art, but I really love the Expendables movies. As we know, I'm a big fan of Stallone and Schwarzenegger and all those 80s action films. And I, I yeah, love yeah. that the Expendables kind of brought all these people together. The first Expendables film I, I liked. It's a little kind of dark and violent. I mean, obviously, but it's, it, like <laughs> the ending gets a little over-the-top violent. The second movie however, is my favorite of the three. And it brings in that sense of humor that was kind of missing from the first one. And I think it's just like the perfect action film. Like they got all the great people in it. They brought in the sense of humor. You know, Schwarzenegger had more than just the cameo this time. Um, the action sequences are fantastic. And I I just really, really enjoyed the film. Uh, and having Van Damme as the bad guy is, is perfect. So uh, I, I just think it's so much fun. I love it. Chuck, Chuck Norris's cameo is great. And yeah. everything yeah. about it works really well for me. Yeah, the the expendable ones, I I do enjoy them as well. This again, it didn't make my list, but uh, yeah, this the second one is better than the first. I always feel feel the be- the first one was more like a TV pilot. Mm. Uh, no good pick. Cool. Yeah, I'll have to see watch the second one again. I haven't seen that in a while. It's definitely my favorite of the three. Yeah, uh, my number eight is The Hobbit: An Unexpected Journey. Peter Jackson stretching the hell out of it. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I preferred this one. Out of all, out of the, the Hobbit trilogy, I think this is my favourite. I mean, the others are visually like good, but even the Hobbit, this one never re- seemed to reach the uh, the greatness of the Lord of the Rings, even though Lord of the Rings was like years before. Right. As it's one of my favourite books, it was just nice seeing it all come to life. Very good. You know, it's funny that one. It, it didn't make my list, and I'm not quite sure why. I love that movie. I agree with everything you said about it, and it was on my short list. And then somehow, as I kept as I kept rearranging the order, it just I would have been, probably be like my number eleven if we did a top yeah. eleven. Oh, it is. It's easily done. Yeah, but I do I do enjoy it very much. So good pick. All right. Well, my number seven is a film we've done an after the ending for, and it is Cabin in the Woods. Uh, co-written by Joss Whedon and Drew Goddard and directed by Drew Goddard. It's uh, it's a horror film with a serious dose of comedy to it with a uh, uh, pre-huge fame Chris Hemsworth. And uh, it's just so much fun. Uh, we talked about it at length in our episode, so I won't go into it too much. And I have a sneaking suspicion it may still end up on your list. But it's a movie that I love. And if you haven't seen it, you definitely should because it's a whole lot of fun to watch. Uh, yeah, we talked about that back in episode 31 as well as uh, we also went after the ending of Carrie. Uh, this, it didn't make my list, but uh, I agree with you. It's a, a fun, enjoyable horror film. However, my number seven is uh, Wreck-It Ralph. Oh, yeah, great pick. Because uh, the animated film, John C. Riley as Ralph, set inside the video games, because I just thought it was, uh, it was so much fun. And it was great because they had the license for so, so many actual video game characters, just yeah. seeing them walking around and the whole concept of being inside, you know, these characters are real inside the video game. I just loved it. Uh, it was great. It, the different video game worlds as well had different feel and different designs for the characters. And it was just it was just so much fun. And I, I've watched it a few times with my daughter and it's just always have a laugh. Yeah, yeah, for sure. I actually, another one that was on my short list and didn't quite crack my top 10, and I'm not sure why. I think maybe because I only saw it the one time. I really liked it, but we haven't gone back and watched it again. Um, oh, okay, yeah. And I, yeah. I think had I done that, it probably would have been fresher in my memory, but I, I did really enjoy the film. I think it's very clever. Good pick. Good stuff. All right, well, my number six is interesting because I, initially I thought it might have been my like my number one or maybe my number two because it's a movie I really, really, really love. 
love. Uh, but somehow it came in at number six. Uh, I don't know why. But it is Looper, uh, starring Joseph Gordon-Levitt and Bruce Willis. It's sort of a time travel tale of a man hunting down his younger self. And uh, it's so, so cool. Directed by Ryan Johnson. Um, and, and, you know, he's gotten a lot of critical acclaim for some of his earlier films like, like Brick and The Brothers Bloom, none of which I like as much as I want to. Yeah. I always want to like Ryan Johnson films more than I do, except for Looper, which I absolutely love. This is going to sound really morbid, but there's a, the, my favorite scene in the movie is when Bruce Willis kills a child. And the, the reason for that is <laughs> – Oh, good time. This sounds terrible and this is kind of a spoiler. <laughs> but no, the reason for that is because every movie you see when the hero has to make a choice – or you know somebody you think is the hero, and they come up against this thing like where they have to kill a kid to try and save themselves in the future. They always decide, no, I'm I'm not going to do it. I'm going to be the better man. And this character doesn't do that, and I love that because it's yeah. it's so different. It's not just this idealized you know hero. It's this man who's trying to do this thing, and he doesn't make the right decision, and it makes him so human and so believable. And it totally changed the tone of the movie for me. I think that's when I really fell in love with this film because that's when I knew it wasn't afraid to take chances and do something different. Uh, so yeah. I, I really love it. And if you haven't seen it yet, I, I do recommend it. Yeah, I, I saw it and uh, I don't know why. I just didn't, it didn't quite work for me. Hmm. And I'm still, I'm still not quite sure why. Because I love time travel films. I love uh, Joseph Gordon-Levitt and uh, Bruce Willis yeah. and Emily Blunt. And um, the concept was great, but it, I don't know why. Maybe I'm just being shallow with the fact that Joseph Gordon-Levitt still didn't look like Bruce Willis with all the makeup on. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, they could have just yeah. skipped the makeup. I don't think that part was important at all. Yeah. I think yeah. that's kind of a waste of time and money, but... Yeah, distracting. So, yeah. But yeah, I know it's, uh, it's, uh, I can see why I picked it, and I wish I did like it a bit more, but I think I need to watch it again. Fair enough. Okay, my number six is Killer Joe, mm. uh, by directed by William Friedkin who did a little film by called The Exorcist, who you may have heard of. Yep. It's based on a, a 1993 play of the same name, and it stars Matthew McConaughey in a title role, who's uh, Joe Cooper, who's a police detective, who also happens to have a side career as a contract killer. And it's following us like there's a little, there's a family unit who are a bunch of messed up, mixed up people. I think it's sort of like trailer trash is the term, I believe. Yep. Uh, but they end up getting involved with, with Killer Joe, uh, and he basically manipulates them all, has sex with some of them, hurts others, and it just goes. It's a it's a very dark film, but it was sort of the one. I think it was sort of like the uh, the one of the the films that uh, saw the transition of Matthew McConaughey from the romantic comedy lead to uh, to something different and darker and more substantial. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, you know it's funny. I can see, I can reach out and touch my copy of it, uh, and I still haven't watched it yet. Oh yeah, yeah <laughs> um, it's a... I keep meaning to, and it's just one of those. I know it's a dark film, and I, I just, I, I always feel like I have to be in the mood for it, and I just never seem to be. Yeah, one of these days. Yeah, it's not an easy watching places, but uh, McConaughey is just, uh, he's brilliant in it. Very cool. All right. Well, my number five uh, is been a while since I've had one of these on the list, but it is Skyfall. That would be James Bond, 007 Skyfall. Oh God. Uh, which I know you're not a big fan of because it turns into Home Alone. Home Alone. Yeah, Home I know. Alone. <laughs> but I really loved it. I, I thought it was great. I thought it was it was a stripped down James Bond that still managed to get in a lot of great homages to the original series. Uh, had some neat twists and turns, and uh, had you know some some of the the car and the gadgets here and there. But then at the end, it's just kind of him. Got to get a little bit of the sense of history and origin yeah, of James yeah. Bond, something we've never really had before. I, li I like that a little bit. The way I like the feeling behind it. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I really enjoyed it. I, I could 
can see your criticism. I get it. Uh, but I still love the film. And I think it's a it's just a, a really rip-roaring adventure film. So it's on my list. Okay. Well, it's not on my list. I figured as much. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, well, the other thing which gets you on Skyfall, you know, we had in a Casino Royale, he's just got his double O license to kill. And then it's a two films later, uh-huh. Skyfall, he's, he's, he's old and over the hill. <laughs> and I, 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 that was the other thing when I was saying you're too old Bond, I was going what are you talking about it's two films later why right. well yeah but those two films could have taken place you know 17 years apart so I know but why why do that why <laughs> anyway anyway right. I do like Daniel Craig as Bond though but sure uh, okay my number five God Skyfall why okay <laughs> is uh, my number five is Moonrise Kingdom ugh speaking of yeah. why yeah I know God I think uh, Wes Anderson film, uh, beautifully shot and beautifully acted and rather funny. It's got a great cast, including Bruce Willis, Edward Norton, Bill Murray, Tilda Swinton, Jason Schwartzman, Bob Balaban, and Francis McDormand. It's about two kids who sort of fall in love and they go on the run on this island and they're getting chased down by the parents and the scouts. Uh, and it's just, I just think it's it's got a beautiful feel to it. It's If you like Wes Anderson, you're obviously going to like it. If you people, if you're not, if you like Mike and you don't like Wes Anderson films, there's something wrong with you. Uh, <laughs> no, I'm joking, Let me ask joking. you this, Phil: are, are any of the characters quirky by any chance? Oh, yeah, every single yeah. one, except for the yeah. ones that are emotionally stunted and overly analytical. Let's not forget about those. Yeah, okay. Yeah. Anyway, yeah. Continue. Yeah. I'm sorry. No, I can understand why people don't like Wes Anderson films. Uh, I I pretty much enjoy most of them, and I really did like Moonrise Kingdom. Uh, for some reason, I took a while to get around to seeing this. Maybe because it can be a bit cloying. Some of his some of you know sometimes it can be a bit too Wes Andersony, but I, I I thought this worked well. Sure, but, yeah. But I there mean, you go. Is it going to be on your list though? Uh, <laughs> it's my number one, of course. Now oh. you ruined it for me. Oh no, <laughs> no. But I understand why you don't like it. I can see why people wouldn't. Right. Yeah. yeah I mean, I know, I, and I can see why you do like it. I know people really like Wes Anderson. So if you like his films, it's perfectly fine. I'm just, I'm not a fan. What have you got for your number four? My number four is a little film that I absolutely adore. It is called Safety Not Guaranteed. And it stars Mark Duplass and Aubrey Plaza and Jake Johnson. Not a huge cast, but basically it's about these newspaper reporters who come across an ad, a personal ad for somebody saying, looking for someone to travel through time with me. Safety not guaranteed. And they go and they track down this guy who everyone thinks is crazy who is building a time machine. It's really not about time travel. It's about these personal relationships and how Aubrey Plaza's character connects with Mark Duplass's character even though he might be crazy. Uh, and then you sort of kind of find out why he's building this time machine. It's a beautiful little story um, and it's it's got a lot of humor in it. It's got a lot of funny moments, a lot of touching moments. And it's just one of those kind of – those films that that's off the radar sort of came out of nowhere and then you just fall in love with it and it's it's just a really little special movie that I think not enough people have seen but you kind of don't want too many people to see. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah. Uh, I really loved it. It's it's one of my favorites from the year and I, I do recommend tracking it down if you get the chance. It's a really, really sweet little film. Yeah, I, I agree with you. It almost made my list to be honest but not quite but it's uh, it's it's good to see all be plaza and I'll play in the total – you know, creepy kind of lunatics you can often play. Yeah, I generally don't like her, uh, yeah. but but I think she's good in this film and, and she works in it. Yeah, but it's, yeah, it's a, it was a great uh, idea. It's also semi-true as well, isn't it? Because that article, the, the advert was actually posted by someone. Right, I believe that. Yeah, I believe That's it's based got on the ins- that. inspiration for the film. But yeah, it's, uh, it's well worth uh, tracking down if you haven't seen it though. Indeed. No, good pick. Uh, my number four is a little film directed by Ben Affleck called Argo. Excellent choice. Yeah, which he won the uh, the Oscar for. How the CIA basically set up a fake sci-fi film so they get some Americans out of Tehran. 
Uh, and it's it's a serious subject matter. It's very tense in places, but it's also very funny. Yeah, you got the you've got uh, John Goodman and Alan Arkin in Hollywood. They're the ones sort of working on the film and the fake, making it all work, even though it's fake. And it's just great seeing how all these pieces come together and how how such a, a ludicrous idea did work and did get these people out of there. Right. And it's uh, it's got some great scenes. It's very well directed. But uh, no, I, I thoroughly enjoyed it, and I can see why it did win. Uh, the Oscar. Indeed. I, I like Argo very much. It didn't make my list. Uh, another one that was on my short list and just sort of got edged out, but I, I do enjoy it greatly. Good film. Okay, so we're into our top threes now, aren't we? Yes, well, my number three has already appeared on your list, and it is <sighs> 21 Ooh. Jump Street. Oh, we thought it might be. Yeah, now I'm, I was a huge fan of the TV show. It was on when I was a young teenager. I watched it religiously, and I absolutely loved it. And so what makes 21 Jump Street even more impressive is that they did the thing where they take a, a serious TV show and turn it into a comedy, and I still loved the movie because it – it got everything right. It you know it, it it definitely changed the tone of the show, but it was in a reverent way. It wasn't making fun of the show. It was just taking the premise and making it funny, which is very yeah, different from yeah. being a satire. And then of course they had the cameos by the original cast members, and I, it's just such a funny movie. I, I laughed my way through that entire film, start to finish. I think it's hysterical. It's one of the funniest movies of the past decade, easily. And yeah. I just I, I just think it's hysterical. I laugh and laugh and laugh. It's a good point you got there, Howard. They take. You know, because they take so many TV shows and then they just end up turning it all into sex jokes and things like that. Right, right, exactly. My uh, number three is Chronicle. Very good. The little indie film by Josh Trank. It was written by Max Landis. We did an after the ending way, way back in episode three. That's right, an early one. Uh, yeah, yeah. But it's uh, three kids, school kids, who get some strange abilities from uh, a an asteroid, a meteorite or whatever. And while at first they have fun with their telekinetic abilities and flying around, one of them is having trouble at home. And uh, as Peter Parker says all the time, with great power comes great responsibility. And another phrase is power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely. And in this case, we see both things. Some Two of the guys who get the powers use it, you know, responsibly. And then one of them with the trouble at home, it just corrupts him. And over time, he just ends up lashing out at everything and everyone. But for this low-budget sci-fi superhero film, it's absolutely amazing. The effects are just you're watching it going, how how have they done that so cheap? And it just it just works really well. And it's a great cast of Dane DeHaan, Alex Russell, and Michael B. Jordan. Uh, and it's just, if you've not seen it, honestly, if you've only heard of Josh Trank because of the last Fantastic Four film, go back and check out this because it's a brilliant film. I agree wholeheartedly. Again, another one on my short list didn't quite make it. It actually made my first draft of the list and then it got bumped off. But uh, a film I really do like quite a bit. Uh, it, it's it's surprisingly good, so definitely worth yeah, a watch. Yeah, that's, that's the best way to do it. It surprised the hell out of me when I saw it. Yes. All right, well, my number two was a very close uh, second to my number one, and I, I kind of flip-flopped on them, even though they're completely different types of films. But my number two is a little movie called Pitch Perfect, uh, which is uh, stars Anna Kendrick, of course, and is a musical of sorts about these a cappella singers uh, in competition. And it's, it is utterly magical and fantastic and i love every minute of it and i really do think that pitch perfect is kind of like the breakfast club for this current generation you know like people who grew up in the 80s yeah, yeah. can look at these brat pack movies breakfast club is really obviously one of the most is one of the most popular ones and i feel like teenagers today they have pitch perfect and i think that 30 years from now they're going to be having anniversary screenings on big screens and they'll be having the you know the anniversary edition blu-ray or whatever the, the technology is then I, I think this is a movie that people are going to love 
for many, many years to come. Uh, I enjoyed the sequel as well, although I don't think it quite captures the magic of the first one, but I think that the first one just does everything right. Anna Kendrick is fantastic. I love the way they develop this kind of romance without overdoing it. Obviously, it pays tribute to Breakfast Club in the film itself, so I think it wears its influences on its sleeve, but I just really think it's pardon the pun, I think it's a perfect movie. There isn't one scene in that film for me that doesn't work. And the music's fantastic. So it's just a win-win all around. And I absolutely love it. Yeah, no, it's a, I, I agree. It's a, it's a lovely, fun comedy film. Uh, it didn't, didn't quite make my list just be, purely because uh, I've, I've only seen it the once and it was sort of like uh, I wasn't fully focused on it. You know, it's where you're sort of watching it, but I had to do other things as well. Right, no, I, I get it. But, but uh, I need to have to sit down and just uh, have a good good watch of it yeah, because i do so, like so i do like anna kendrick and uh yeah Rick it just Taylor. all works it all works yeah yeah okay well but uh my number two is a bit different it's uh django unchained okay uh the quentin tarantino one with jamie fox christoph waltz uh leonardo dicaprio and kerry washington as it's tarantino so it's got a cracking script it's got some great moments in it uh that doesn't include though quentin tarantino's turn on screen it's not one of <laughs> you know it's sort of one the accent he does you know they should have maybe kept that one out but uh, I just like the size and scale of it and then it all comes down to just you know I'm stuck in the house having these conversations with uh, DiCaprio and I just think it's it's done extremely well. It's a good pick. I, I like Django Unchained. Um, it, it didn't make my list because I have some issues with it. One of which as we've talked about on the show before is is the incessant overuse of the N-word um, that Quentin Tarantino is just obsessed with using at every chance he gets. Uh, yeah, I find yeah. it to be a bit much. And also I felt like the last half hour or so turns into such a bloodbath. I'm not squeamish uh, in regards to like movie violence, but it just sort of – it just becomes monotonous because there's just so much blood flying everywhere that it, it just – you know, I feel like it's just a little over the top. I do enjoy the movie very much, but it's not yeah. – it's not it wasn't quite good enough to make my list just because I think he could have toned it down a little bit and the film actually would have been better for it. Oh, I understand all those points. Yeah, yeah. Could uh, maybe maybe edit it down a little bit and as you say with the certain words and things like that. Right. But, Sometimes yeah. less is more. That's all I'm saying. Yeah. All right, well, my number one probably won't be a big surprise to anybody. Uh, it was not only my number one film of the year. It was probably most people's number one film of the year. It was certainly the number one box office film of the year, and it is The Avengers, written and directed by Joss Whedon. And, of course, I don't need to tell you who's in it because everyone knows it. You've all seen The Avengers. I love yeah, this movie. And It's my number one as well for the year. Uh, there you go. I mean, yeah. it's – it, 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 Marvel did something no one else has ever done before. They took all these superheroes and made the, these separate films and then brought them all together in the Avengers. And they got a guy who'd never really made a gigantic hit movie to do it, but they knew that he was talented. And, you know, they figured, well, hey, let's get the best guy for the job, not necessarily the biggest name for the job. And Joss Whedon hit it out of the park. I was just going to say, and also they take, they took some characters, comic book characters, which are well known if you're if a comic book fan, but outside of that, it's, it was only really the Hulk who's the most well-known because of the TV show and everything. But, it's, it's, but then to have introduced Iron Man and Hawkeye and Thor and Black Widow and all these things, it just, it's just amazing how it worked and it worked so well. Yeah, it really did. I mean, it's just, it's just, it's larger than life. He tied everything together so well. It looks amazing. It's just, it's everything you want a big budget spectacular to be. And it holds up to repeat viewings. I mean, it, it oh, really yeah, is the the epitome, the apex of superhero films for my money. And I just, I really love it. And I'm a big Joss Whedon fan, big Marvel fan, big comic book fan, big superhero fan. And this movie just served it all up to me on one big gleaming platter. So what's not to like? Uh, everything you just said, it's, uh, I totally agree. But even the little things like where they have, it was the first time we 
he saw Hawkeye properly. I think he's he's like sort of mentioned in the Thor film, isn't he? Where you see some guy who's meant to be him, right? But uh, the fact that in the when the, in the comics when Hawkeye first appeared, he was a bad guy. So in this film, Hawkeye, you know, he's he's part of Shield, but then he gets you know minds up by Loki, so he's part of the bad guy. So it's it's looking back at this, you know, the history that we have with all these characters in the comic books, and just wrapping it all up in the new film marvel cinematic universe and it's just little things like that just shows that they they know and care about the characters right as well as as well as the obscene amount of money it brings in oh yeah but, uh, yeah well and that's the secret that marvel's figured out is if you take these characters and you treat them right and make it the you know so that we know that they love them and care about them it will bring the money in you know it, it's not one at the expense of the other it's one for the sake of the other yes they want to make a lot of money but the reason the way they make all that money is by making really, really good films that get it right because they know if they do that, if they take the time and the money to invest in it early on and make films people will love, they're going to make, yeah. make way more money than if they just if they just you know funnel out a bunch of crap as quick as they can you know, and not care about it at all. And that's a, it's, yeah. it seems like common sense, like, oh, make good movies. People will come see them. But it's amazing how many companies get that wrong. <clears throat> DC Comics. <clears throat> yeah. I know exactly. Yeah, I mean, it's the fact they have this respect for the characters. So they, it is they're not exactly the same as the comic book characters, but they've got the basic bits and pieces to make you know that what that made the comic book characters so successful and loved. Right. And the Avengers, it was the culmination of Marvel's brilliant first phase, and it it's just fantastic. Yeah. Yeah, it's a winner all around. Yep, yep. All right. Well, on that note, that is going to wrap up our top 10 films of 2012. A pretty good year overall. Lots to watch. And it's still quite a few, which I haven't seen. Right. Right. Yeah, always. Yeah. All right. Well, on that note, Phil, why don't you tell people what they can look forward to next week? Okay. Next week, we will be doing the top 10 films of 1979 and going after the ending of The Creature from the Black Lagoon. And there's something about Mary. Which is a heck of a double feature if ever I have heard of one. It certainly is, yeah. Monster movie and comedy. Yeah, ostensibly. <laughs> I quite like something about Mary. Oh, okay. I'm glad one of us does then. That'll make the episode more fun. I can understand why some people don't, because it was <laughs> Farrelly Brothers, wasn't it? Yeah. And 1979, there should be some good films mixed in that yeah absolutely i'm looking forward to it yes all righty well then uh, it is time for us to sign off so as always we thank you greatly for listening i'm mike spring and i'm phil edwards and we'll see you next week after the ending okay henry no that was a good start got his name wrong yeah that's right yeah. all right well very cool let's uh blah 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 yeah i didn't like that transition at all so <laughs> All right, well, why don't we uh, see your... <laughs> yep, why don't we see if I can do the transition? Well, there you go. So, uh, yeah, I still don't know how to transition tonight. I don't know why I'm having such a hard time with that. It's got a transition. More more people are doing it. <laughs> it's very trendy these days. Yeah, best not put that in the outtakes. I could get missed. <laughs> I don't know. I don't think that's too uh, too offensive. <laughs> uh, no, I don't know. I'll see. Yeah, I'll play it by ear. We'll see. We'll see if you piss me off during the week or not. <laughs> okay. Oh, I was trying to think of a scissor-based pun, but I couldn't think of one. <laughs> not easy to make scissor-based puns. No. Uh, You've got to be a cut above. That's what I was about to say. Yeah. <laughs> uh, anyway, you slice it, it's going to be. <laughs> oh man, this is the quintessential episode, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. All right. Yeah. Try the fish. <laughs> Oh, I love it.
It was a, it was just enjoyable, comforting, and fun. It was a, it was a fun, comforting, cinematic. Uh, oh, I can't think of the words. Jesus Christ. <laughs> Probably just because I think not quite. I think I came to it just a little bit. Oh my God, I can't talk. <laughs> uh.